McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Just stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner. And this is your crash course in the major themes of our two-hour program. It was aired this past week, January 25th, 2017. Our program, Wharton Moneyball, is aired every Wednesday morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. And then replayed throughout the week. You can listen to us live or on the replay. But if you don't want to listen live or to the full two-hour show, you can listen to our podcast, which is a review of the major themes and what we discussed and uh, extracts from our interviewers. And today, I'm going to be recapping the interviews with Rick Peterson and with Lorena Martin. Rick Peterson is a major league pitching coach. He's been for, for more than 20 years. He started with the, with the Oakland A's, and then he went to the New York Mets and the Milwaukee Brewers most recently with the Baltimore Orioles. And he's actually the author of a new book called Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. And we interviewed Rick Peterson on our show this past week. I was joined in the studio with Professor Cade Massey, who's a professor of operations and information decisions, and with my colleague in the statistics department, Shane Jensen. Let's go to our first clip with Rick Peterson. So you have an entire chapter on reframing, trying harder to trying easier, which is counterintuitive and it seems like it's helpful advice. And you, and you motivate it in the chapter with the Sandy Koufax story, which is, I thought, pretty compelling. Well, Sandy used to come to spring training all the time or, or oftentimes with the Mets. And, and again, I mean, geez, man, every, as soon as I see Sandy Koufax, my eyes fall off in tears. I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, Sandy Koufax. Yeah. And, and one, of the, one, of the, one of the things that really resonated – I remember him standing, we were standing amongst, you know, a group of young pitchers, and he said, you know what, see how easy you can try hard. And then he, and he basically said, take the grunt out, you know, and he, and he realized at a point in his career, I believe it was a spring training game, that he said, someone gave me advice, said, look, you know, maybe just put in about 80, 90% effort into this. And, and he found himself like performing about the best he's ever performed and realized, I don't need, I don't need to try to throw as hard as I possibly can. And, and we also realize that when you do, you don't throw harder. You know, that's the other factor. You just miss the target. Right. What it comes down to. You know, so, so Sandy, Sandy's, you know, in, you know, just incredible wisdom of see if you can try easy. And, and then what happens is you get into this flow. And typically, when pitchers can get their foot off the gas pedal just a little bit, and I think we find we find that in our golf game, and I also think we find that in our personal lives. You know that that we don't have to like grit our teeth and you know clench our jaw every time we're trying to perform. You know, if we can really just relax and take a deep breath, and then our mind gets calm and relaxed. And we have a we have a chap a chapter that. You know, and, and again, this is more like a handbook. This is not a clinical psychology book. Um, this is really a handbook that you can really keep around you on a, on a frequent basis. And when you feel like I got a big presentation or, you know, I got a big test coming up or, you know, I got a big sales meeting coming up and a big sales cycle I got to close out, you know, you, you just open it up to one of these chapters and you'll get some conventional wisdom from multiple different people of how they, how they dealt with these situations and, and were able to reframe a situation and perform at their best. 
So it's great to hear that that advice from Rick Peterson, He's a longtime guest in our show. He has great experience working with Major League Baseball players. And the topic of his book really is called Crunch Time, is how to perform at your best when the most is on the line. So this happens so frequently in the course of a Major League season. There's so many games. There's the postseason. And all of it's there riding on you. I can't tell you, even from my own experience, getting up in the bottom of the ninth inning with the bases loaded and the whole game rests on you. That's called crunch time. And there isn't much data analysis to help you figure out what to do best. So it's a great story that we heard about Sandy Koufax, who recommends something that seems quite counterintuitive. Just try the hardest by only giving 80% effort. I think the gain there is nonlinear. So you, you pull back a little bit and then you lose that what you gain is that you're not as defeated by the pressure, and that allows you to perform better, even though you're not trying 100%. The, the point is, is that if you try 100%, you over-try, and then the pressure gets to you. So try to relax a little bit, take a little bit off, not work quite as hard, and the intensity of the moment will be easier to manage. Our next clip is again from Rick Peterson. This notion of reframing, can you just be a little more precise with us on it? Because it really is the theme of the book. You've got six chapters on six different ways of, of reframing. What do you mean by that? Reframe is literally look at a situation and then consciously take what we call the caveman out. Because during that fear, worry, and doubt, you know, actually what happens from a physiological standpoint, cortisol is released through the system. And then your brain doesn't function properly under pressure. Your body gets tight. Your muscles get tight. But by relaxing and looking at the situation a little bit differently, like one of the stories I believe was Tom Watson was one of the um, CEOs of IBM. And during one of these huge sales cycles, one of his key salespeople, you know, kind of made a mistake or just didn't really, you know, nail this down and cost, cost the company $10 million. So Tom called him in the office and the salesperson says to Tom, I, I guess you're looking for my resignation or you probably want to fire me. Tom says, are you kidding me? We just invested $10 million in, in, for you to learn this lesson of how to deal with this situation more effectively. That's perfect. You know, so he took that situation and just totally reframed it. And I think the other thing that, that I think people would resonate, I'm a huge Seinfeld fan, and I think I've told the story several times, but I met Jerry when I was with the Mets. He's a Mets fanatic. And I had a chance to ask him about how he you know, looked at this material. Seinfeld episodes are all comedic reframes. I mean, that's literally what they are. It's looking at daily situations that, you know, can be uncomfortable and, you know, where anger can come into, you know, our, our presence where, you know, you go to the airport and you've had a reservation for a car and you get there and there's no car. It's like, hey, I, I see you got a reservation, but you don't have a car. It's like, well, what did I have a reservation for? <laughs> you know? And, you know, so, so all, the whole episodes are all about comedic reframes. Right. Reframing, there you have it. It's a big subject matter in psychology. And we know from a lot of the most important work in behavioral psychology is that the framing of an event will change your decision making. So what Rick is actually not talking about decision making, he's more talking about performance and that performance can be affected by the way you think about a actual situation. So the behavioral psychologists think about decision-making and what Rick is talking about is actual performance, but it's equally important in both contexts. And we know that human beings are very, very susceptible to changing the way they view a situation without actually changing any of the facts. 
and that's what makes it interesting. So it's not like we're, we're, there's new reality. It's the same reality. It's just a, it's a different way of looking at it. Um, some economists would argue that this is uh, actually irrational, uh, but it's the way we behave. So let's go to our, our next guest, which is Lorena Martin. She's currently the director of sports performance analytics for the Los Angeles Lakers, and she's the author of a sports performance measurement book called The Science of Assessing Performance, Predicting Future Outcomes and Interpreting Models and Evaluating the Market Value of Athletes. Let's go to our first clip with Lorena. How did you get involved in this work in general, and how did you make this most recent turn into basketball? Yeah, uh, okay, so long story, I'll try and make it as concise as possible. But um, So I started off wanting to be a professional tennis player. Um, I did get to play the university level division. Uh, first, it was NAIA Division Two, then um, Division One. Worked my way up. Um, I finally played some pro tournaments, but uh, you don't see me making the amount of money that uh, the top ten players make, right? Mm-hmm. So at a certain time, I said, "Okay, we need to do something." And my my goal was always what always captured my interest was uh, trying to figure out. Right, as most analysts do, trying to solve something. Um, what is it that makes, or what is it that distinguishes good from great athletes, as well as those that are great from legends? Right. So, for instance, you know, what makes a top 100 player crank into the top 50, or vice? Um, also, for instance, then what differentiates, let's say, Oscar de la Hoya to Muhammad Ali? Right. Oh wow. Uh, a legend. Okay. Right. Okay. So what what are those factors um, that differentiate them? And um, so I started off with psychology, uh, piquing my interest. And um, I obtained my bachelor's and my master's in psychology. And um, I did two years of a practicum where basically I gave therapy to individuals. Uh, at that time, it was substance use um, as, well as, prof- as, as well as professional athletes. But in giving therapy, I realized, okay, so what I'm interested in is assessing them and then handing it over to someone who wants to deal with that, right? So <laughs> I'm more interested in finding out the problem, assessing it, evaluating it, and then an- analyzing progress. Well, we know that the sports teams are paying big money and hiring lots of people who will do just what Lorena is doing now for the Los Angeles Lakers. It's an incredible job and a great opportunity for her. The next question uh, that Lorraine is actually responding to has to do with embracing diversity in sports analytics. It is definitely an area where it is almost entirely dominated by men and certainly mostly white men, um, in my experience. And we are certainly welcome to see individuals from other backgrounds join us. It's not an easy road to hoe because the candidates tend to be pretty uniform. So let's hear Lorena talk about the subject. Speaking of barriers, I want to, before you go, we, we, what can we do to get more women involved with sports analytics? So we know there are great analysts out there. We know there are many more who have the potential to be great analysts. We don't run across them that often. You're in a, you're in a very high-profile position. What, what, what are you seeing, and what can we do to contribute to that? What does the world need to do to contribute to that? Yeah, uh, first of all, I'd like to say that I'm very blessed and, and, and grateful to um, the Lakers for giving me that opportunity uh, to put me in, in such a great position, especially uh, groundbreaking for women um, in, in sports performance analytics. I definitely would tell women to not get discouraged, um, to keep doing your work. Um, I think they that basically, you know, giving them the opportunity to prove themselves 
is very important, um, especially in a male-dominated world, right? Uh, well, dominated world when I mean in the sports industry, in the professional field. Right. Um, so collaborating and using each other's strengths. Um, so women have a, we have a tendency to see things a little bit differently. And instead of, you know, looking at it from a negative, maybe incorporate it, right? And integrate that and, and, and seeing how that could be a strength. But definitely telling the women not to get discouraged and continue um, working on mathematics, statistics, and science, um, regardless of the barriers. Mm -hmm. We kind of have to push through for a little while. Yes, that's true. The the women do need to push through. Um, I actually would love to see some more women, even at the introductory level. Um, there's lots of opportunities. I teach a high school class in the summertime. If there are anyone who might know anyone out there who's uh, looking for an intensive high school program in statistics and computing, we have scholarships specifically for young women who are interested in studying more about statistics and statistical programming. And we'd love to see um, others like Lorena enter the field. Our last clip is actually just a discussion among the three of us, uh, Cade, Shane, and myself, on the topic of offensive play success and the predictions and models for football. Now, we can't say Super Bowls or playoffs, so we can say across all seasons, regular season games, playoffs, everything. The most predictive stat by far is offensive play success. Interesting. And so that's we we didn't create that we borrowed it. It's kind of out there now. But if you had and to pick one number, I had one number. Right, right. If I had one number, and it matters a lot more than the other stats. It's not. It's not. It's head and shoulders above most important. That's in terms of predicting performance. But that's you know all games, all teams, yeah, all years. That's right. That's right. And it may. It. I mean, the argument like, is that I, like, are right. I mean, you could right. I mean, basically, a follow up analysis would be you kind of select out. For the like, kind of like the games involving, yeah, it's it, it's like the sample, the subsample of games that involve good teams or something so like that. The, 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 like when good teams face good, good teams, teams, right? What like is, is is does offensive play success still stand yeah. out as much? One one of the things that we find that is against conventional wisdom, and we get asked about a lot, is uh, the importance of matchups. Mm -hmm. Some people believe, you know, this team's got a great running running offense, and they've got no rushing. Defense. Yeah, the entire so, the entire reason Atlanta beat Green Bay is that Green Bay's secondary was really banged up, and so they were able to pass all over. Yeah, them. so it's yeah, strength right. against weakness, and yeah. so people worry a lot about these matchups. And we have looked hard for matchups because if it's true, you want to include team that matchups. team team team. So, like, does it matter mm -hmm. that you know to this particular matchup, rushing versus rushing D, rushing over versus rushing D, et cetera? And we just can't find that it matters. What in other words, the the overall team ranking, the overall team power ranking, is a sufficient statistic for everything else. So all yeah. you need to know is the overall team strength, and in, at least in football, that's some deep stuff. There, Kate is dishing out to us. Essentially, what he's talking about is trying to predict success on the field, not in the playoffs, but in the regular season. And he talked about play success as a singular measure for doing that. If you had to pick one number. That for your offense uh, to predict how many points you're going to score, it would be percentage of plays that are successful. Now that takes some coding because it, you have to define what it means to be successful. If you're 
third and 12, um, success might be very different when you're fourth and one. So it's not just the number of yards. It's somewhat of a subjective criteria. And you look at all the plays you ran and the percentage of them that were successful, and that's the magic number. What he talked about, what Cade was talking about at the end was and a search for adjustments, in particular adjustments to the model that would take into account what he called matchups. So if a team is uh, one type of offense versus another type of defense, that might argue that there is a certain style that matches well and another style that matches poorly, and that somehow the model should take that into account. And what Cade was explaining is that despite an exhaustive search, they've never found any value in matching up different types of offenses and defenses, and that the only thing that really mattered was an overall power ranking score that just kind of wraps in all styles and all values into one number. So that's uh, something to chew on, and we'll get back to that discussion later. I know that in baseball, for example, there is matchups. We think about that a lot, and that matters, but baseball a much more individual game, so you have far more data to play with. Well, eventually, someone will discover the way matchups can work in uh, in football. We'll see. And you'll have to wait for the research to occur. Anyway, that wraps our program up for this week, our post-game podcast. If you'd like to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple Store under podcasts under Wharton Moneyball. Don't forget to check out our live show on Sirius XM 111 from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports and enjoy your statistics.